Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. I think what we see emerging is essentially new forms of secular orthodoxy forming, and we can really view these modern-day hate speech cases as an equivalent, really, of the blasphemy cases of old. Getting your kids counter-programmed to have their social life, family and community focused, this is generally what the research suggests is useful for a successful transmission of values across generations. The Lord does not set us to look for escape from trouble. He sends his church right into the midst of trouble. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. We're not taught to look for an escape from trouble, but to confess Christ and let come what may. Lord, thank you that I belong to a we. I am baptized into your church so that that even if I feel alone, I can pray the first word of the prayer Jesus gives me and know that I'm not alone. I belong to your church, Lord. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to Issues Etc. All right, guys, let's go. How do we Christians respond to the idea that there are no absolutes? That tolerance, the world's brand of tolerance, is the greatest virtue, or that all religions are essentially the same. Are there Christian responses to these misconceptions. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Monday afternoon, September the 18th. We're going to be talking with Vody Bakum about Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Then Molly Hemingway of Fox News will join us to give us a little rundown on President Trump's abortion comments on Meet the Press. Dr. Vody Bakum is founding dean and senior lecturer in the School of Divinity at African Christian University in Zambia, He's author of several books, including his newly revised book, The Ever-Loving Truth. Dr. Bauckham, welcome back. Hey, thank you very much. It's good to be back with you. What does it mean to live in a post-Christian America? Yeah, you know, I borrowed that term from from Francis Schaeffer. And being post-Christian doesn't mean that Christianity is gone as much as it means that the influence has waned and that people have either forgotten, neglected, or become antagonistic to those foundational truths upon which our culture has been built. And we're seeing the result of that in Christianity being sort of ostracized and marginalized, and many of the assumptions that we used to take for granted are now being vilified within the culture. How has the success of the megachurch disguised the church's compromise with the world? I think it gave us this false sense of security. You know, when you look up and you see churches in your neighborhood or on television where there are thousands and thousands of people present, it gives the appearance of revival, of renewal, of growth. But you scratch the surface and you begin to realize that many of these churches where there are thousands and thousands of people shouldn't be listed as churches at all because there's no gospel present 
And instead, what we're looking at is a fulfillment of Paul's warning to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 of people no longer submitting themselves to truth or being willing to endure sound doctrine, but instead, because of their itching ears, they gather to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And I think because we didn't pay close enough attention, we were lulled into a sense of security and into a sense of believing that Christianity was on the rise when, in fact, in many ways, it was on the wane. What does it mean in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where the opponents of the gospel regard Peter and John as untrained men? What does that really mean? Yes, yeah, interesting that phrase, when we hear that, these untrained, uneducated men, our automatic assumption is that these are country bumpkins and maybe they were illiterate, but they weren't. I mean, these are the guys who gave us first, second, third John, <laughs> you know, the gospel of John, first and second Peter. These men were very well educated. What's being referred to there is the fact that they were not educated in the right way. They were not educated in the right schools of thought. What was being referred to there is them being outsiders, them not holding to the main ideologies that held sway in their day. And, you know, in that way, it's kind of similar to people within Christianity. What do you call a liberal Christian who went to Harvard? Well, you call him a genius. You know, what do you call a, a conservative Christian who went to Harvard? Well, you call him a narrow-minded bigot, right? Because it's not about where you go. It's about the ideology to which you hold. That's what determines in our culture's eyes whether or not you're an untrained man. Speaking of Harvard, how have academia in general and our legal system turned against Christian truth? Yeah, well, there's a couple of ways to answer that. You know, one way to, to look at that is the sort of historic mechanisms. Another way is kind of the manifestations. And when you look at the historic mechanisms, you find that schools like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and schools like this, they were founded in many ways primarily to train preachers. These schools were committed to the scriptures and the word of God. You know, you had to be proficient in Greek and Hebrew to get into Harvard initially, not to get out, but to get in, right? And what happened is two things. With all of these schools, there's a couple of things that happened. One, you separate the school of divinity from the university so that you bifurcate knowledge. There's your theological knowledge over here and then your secular knowledge over there. And then you separate the institution itself from the church. And these two things sort of paved the way for apostasy in the broader institution. And then you see this progressive movement of the institution away from the rudimentary foundations upon which it was built and then celebrating that sort of like a child leaving the home, declaring its independence. And then, you know, of course, the fruit of that is that many of these institutions have become enemies of the gospel, enemies of Christian truth, and they make a mockery of Christian truth. What about the legal system? How have our country's laws 
become hostile toward Christianity. Yeah, it's interesting. In the early colonies, Blackstone's commentary on the laws of England was at one point second only to the Bible in its popularity. And we understood that American jurisprudence was basically God's law distilled down through the English common law. And you read Blackstone's commentary on the laws of England and you have Bible references, you know. And of course now we've moved so far from that in the sense that we no longer recognize that there is a supreme lawgiver and that our understanding of the law has to be distilled down through our understanding of the supreme lawgiver to where now we view the law from the standpoint of what's most popular and what the majority thinks, what the majority wants, what the majority believes. And the result of that is that we are again moving farther and farther away from the law of the supreme lawgiver. How do you respond to the myth that all religions are the same? Yeah, by pointing to a couple of things. For example, if you look at Buddhism, Buddhism is essentially an atheistic religion. There is no God in Buddhism. In Christianity, in, in Judaism and others, you, you, you have a God, right? You have monotheistic religions. So the existence of both Buddhism and Christianity basically disproves the myth that all religions are the same. They can't be the same when they make contradictory claims. Either one of them is wrong or both of them is wrong, but they can't both be the same and they can't both be right. What do you make of the myth that tolerance is the greatest virtue? <laughs> yeah, the problem with that, number one, is that the tolerance that we believe in today is actually not tolerance at all. Tolerance as the virtue that we have you know, always held dear is the idea that we can disagree agreeably, but it was always based on the assumption that there is an absolute truth. And it's based on the assumption that neither you nor I are the arbiter of that truth. That truth comes from God himself. And so tolerance always had limits, and those limits were always based on the God who is the author of truth. The new tolerance is based on the idea that we must not only disagree agreeably, but we can't disagree at all. I must not only embrace whatever it is that you believe, but I must celebrate whatever it is that you believe. And to the degree that I don't embrace it or don't celebrate it, to that degree, I'm not worthy of tolerance. It used to be that to the degree that we were at odds with the law of the supreme lawgiver, that our ideas were not worthy of tolerance. Now it is to the degree that we are at odds with the sincerely held beliefs of whatever group it is out there that is claiming to be aggrieved, to that degree, we are not worthy of tolerance. So we've got a completely different foundation when it comes to the idea of tolerance. And the foundation is not only unworkable, but the foundation has led us to a place where the only thing that matters 
is personal experience and power. Many believe that there are no absolutes. How do you respond to that? By asking if people are absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. Because if we're absolutely sure that there are no absolutes, we've got a problem. And that is the problem, that there are people who are absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. And the statement that there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. So that statement violates the law of non-contradiction and can therefore not be true. What is philosophical pluralism? So philosophical pluralism is the idea that, you know, all ideas are equally valid or equally valuable. It's not just the idea, for example, objective pluralism. You look at America and you say America is a pluralistic culture in that you have a multi-ethnic populace, people coming from multiple different nationalities to come together and form America, right? The whole e pluribus unum idea. But there's a difference between acknowledging that and trying to say that all ideas are of equal value. Why can't the church simply remain neutral? (laughs) Because we're at war, or to put it another way, because our adversary is at war with us. In Everloving Truth, what I'm doing is I'm I'm basically, it's an exposition of Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, they find themselves in a pre-Christian culture. And we find ourselves sort of the mirror opposite in a post-Christian culture. And in that environment, neutrality was not an option. Their culture could not be neutral with them preaching the gospel. And our culture cannot be neutral with us preaching the gospel. Because when our culture is built on pluralism and tolerance and relativism, then our religion, which rejects pluralism, tolerance, and relativism as defined by our culture, it cannot coexist with us. It cannot be neutral with us because we put the lie to everything that it believes. And our culture cannot continue to march down this road while Christianity exists alongside these ideas constantly reminding everyone that they are not only wrong, but completely nonsensical. Dr. Vody Bakum is our guest. We're talking about Christianity and a post-Christian culture. On the other side, what stereotypes of Christians have emerged in America? Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. 
Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness, or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. The Biblical Worldview Conference is Saturday, November 4th in Chicago. This year's theme is, For Such a Time as This, Discernment, Boldness, and Compassion. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will be speaking on gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and sharing Christ in a woke culture. For more information, visit worldviewchicago.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference, November 4th in Chicago, worldviewchicago.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. On this Monday, September the 18th, we're talking about Christianity in a post-Christian culture with Dr. Bodie Bauckham, author of several books, including his newly revised The Ever-Loving Truth. Dr. Bacham, what stereotypes of Christians have begun to emerge in America? <laughs> Boy, there are a number of them. I go through a number of them in the book, but there's a couple of them that probably speak the loudest. And the one that speaks the loudest is the idea of the Christian as the do-gooder, right? Christianity is about soup kitchens and orphanages and about meeting people's physical needs. Another one is the idea of Christians as the leftist political activist. These are things that you see over and over and over again in the movies and on television. Whenever you see conservative Christianity, you see the Christian Taliban. Conservative Christians are the ones who go out and bomb abortion clinics or the ones who go out and do violence against people. You know, that's the stereotype that you see of Christians who actually believe in Christianity. The other stereotypes are people who believe in the same thing that any other religion believes in, in terms of outward goodness, but has absolutely no gospel attached to it. How has the name of Jesus become offensive? Because, again, Jesus puts the lie to those stereotypes of Christianity. People want to present Jesus as, you know, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, who's just a philosopher, who's all about getting people to get along and to meet outward physical needs, which, of course, Christians do. The modern university, the modern hospital, and all of these things come from us. They come from Christians, right? But the problem is that Jesus is Lord, He's not trying to be Lord. He's not wanting to be Lord. He is Lord. And when Jesus is Lord, then pluralism and tolerance and relativism 
are put to death because of the Lordship of Christ. And if our culture is committed to resting on these three ideas, then it cannot tolerate the Christ of the Bible. What do you mean when you say we must preach? What I mean by that is the gospel is good news, and good news must be communicated. We have not been called to just live in this world and live as people who do good and live as people who live righteous lives in the hopes that people will see that and somehow reason from that to the gospel. It doesn't work that way. We must proclaim the truth of the gospel. We must go into all the world and make disciples. And the only way that we do that is through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, we don't like to do that because of the price that we pay in the midst of a culture that hates Christ, that hates his lordship. But nevertheless, that's who we are and it's what we must do. Why should we be prepared to suffer for the testimony of Jesus? Because it puts us at odds with the broader culture. The broader culture hates the Lordship of Christ. And when we are constantly reminding them of the Lordship of Christ that they hate, the culture will hate us and there will be suffering. They'll be suffering in small and large ways. They'll be suffering in terms of you know, people's opinions of us not being positive opinions of us. But there will also be suffering in terms of us eventually facing legal prosecution because of things like proclaiming the gospel or because of things like proclaiming that a man can't become a woman and a woman can't become a man. And regardless of what Obergefell says, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. Those things are costly and will become more costly as time goes by. Go into a little more detail. What does scripture teach us about Christian suffering? You know, that suffering is part and parcel of who we are. That to walk with Christ is to walk in the, what Paul calls the fellowship of his suffering. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, we're told that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. You know, suffering does not mean that we are living in the absence of God's presence and power. In fact, it means quite the opposite. When and because we walk and live in the presence of God's power, then we are enabled to endure the suffering that comes as a direct result of our union and communion with Christ, who also suffered because of righteousness. How do we defend the truth and the reliability of Scripture? I have this answer in the book that I lift from Second Peter 1 that I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I think we need to, to disabuse ourselves of this notion that God has called us to blind faith. He hasn't called us to blind faith. He's called us 
to a reasonable faith based upon his revelation. He is the God who speaks, the God who has spoken through his word. And he calls us to believe what he has revealed. In the face of all the false Christs that the world promotes, how do we present the Jesus found in Scripture? You know, I think we present him as we find him in Scripture. And I think one of the things we need to be wary of is the temptation to present Christ the way we think the culture wants us to present him. What we have a tendency to do is, I like to call it shaving off the edges of the gospel. The culture says, we don't like this about Jesus. We don't like that about Jesus. We don't like exclusivity, and so we don't preach an exclusive Christ. We don't like judgment or hell, so we don't preach judgment. We just end up with these stereotypes. We end up with lowly Jesus, meek and mild, who just wants you to do good and have soup kitchens. And that Jesus won't save you because he's not the Jesus of the Bible. That Jesus won't call you to repentance. And in order to come to salvation, we must come to repentance and faith. And faith in the Jesus who has been revealed to us in the scriptures. Finally, you say that we should infiltrate and invade the culture. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so there's there's a number of things that we can do. We can be isolated from the culture. And we can just sort of, you know, be on the outside hoping that the culture doesn't touch us. Or we can be completely immersed in the culture, indistinguishable from the culture. Or we can be insulated in the culture, in the world, but not of the world. That's what we're called to be. We're not called to avoid the culture, to run away from the culture. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be aliens and strangers, as Peter puts it, aliens and strangers within this world and doing the things that people in this world do, but doing them in different ways and doing them for different reasons. And in that same letter, Peter calls us to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that is in us. Dr. Vodibakum is founding dean and senior lecturer at the School of Divinity at African Christian University in Zambia. He's author of several books, including his newly revised book, The Ever-Loving Truth. You'll find a link to this book on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Dr. Bakum, thank you again. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We will talk about President Trump's abortion comments on Meet the Press this weekend with Molly Hemingway of Fox News next. that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. 
spice-flavoured everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crusom's mugs, featuring your favourite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses or Christian humour. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practised here. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. 